Hello and welcome back to the Think Business Podcast powered by Bank of Ireland. One day, a young precision engineer decided to make a ring for the girl of his dreams. Little did Nigel O'Reilly realise that this would actually propel him on a career of making jewellery for fashion houses all over the world, including actresses like Saoirse Ronan. I talked to him about building this kind of industry from the west of Ireland. My understanding, Nigel, is you were a precision engineer before you were a goldsmith. Uh, so tell, tell us about how you became a goldsmith or how, how did you go from uh, making precise electronics for the or products for the medical industry to suddenly, you know, jewellery that adorns the likes of Saoirse Ronan? Uh, well, like everything, John, it uh, was to impress a woman. So um, <laughs> I was, um, yeah, so I, after doing my leave insert, I didn't want to go to college because I'm severely dyslexic and that whole uh, that whole style of education really didn't suit me or appeal to me in any way, do you know? I didn't want to go back into an academic kind of field when I'd spent the last five years trying to get out of it, basically. So uh, I got an apprenticeship as a toolmaker and it was quite difficult. It was a hard to have when all your friends are out partying and getting up at three o'clock the day when you're getting up at half six to go out to work. But what I loved about that job was the the discipline it had. You know, you're working towards microns. You know, there's no there's no room for error whatsoever at all. You know, there's absolutely no because you're making medical devices for for people, so there's mm. you only have one chance with these things. But um, I yeah, I started. I met this girl in Galway, <laughs> and um, I just wanted to impress her. So instead of doing my job, I met up a ring for her. And uh, she was like, this is really cool. You should, you should, have you ever looked at jewelry? And that brought me right back to um, leave insert because of my dyslexia. I tried to do as many practical things as I could. So um, they had this course, I don't know if they still have it now called LCVP, which was basically you did projects and you did an interview and things like that and case studies on businesses. And that took your worst, um, subject to give you the points for your worst subject which was definitely going to be Irish for me unfortunately <laughs> as much as I love the language uh, mm. it wasn't going to be a good one yeah so I took me right back we did a case study on a business and the business happened to be a jeweler and it had nothing to do with the jewelry but he was just talking about business and that I thought that was fascinating at the time but I come from a house with of full of boys uh, it's GAA that's the main thing you know so there was no jewelry I didn't even understand how to become a jeweler when Tracy mentioned it then it got me thinking like yeah that could be an interesting thing to do so I just did a a three-day course just to see if I enjoyed it and I absolutely loved it absolutely became obsessed with it and then I applied for the course in the crafts council back in god can you remember a long time ago (laughs) but um yeah, 2015. Yeah, so I applied back then, and they take on 12 people every two years. And yeah, I got in. I was lucky enough to get in. And since then, it's been an obsession. I've just tried to work with as many master jewelers as I could in as many countries as I could. So um, mm. yeah, how how did you how did you do your um, education? I suppose from the point of view of like you you obviously did the courses, but you mentioned there that you um you went around the world a bit. How did how did you how did you how did you how did you make the uh, I suppose the applied aspect of, of of learning to be a goldsmith work from the point of view of going around the world learning from masters? Well, basically, my tactic was 
just to show up at these goldsmith stores and show them your work and show them that you're eager to work. Um, my lecturer, Jane, the first woman that gave me a chance, Jane Houston, in jewellery, and I owe it all to her, really. She said that if you meet a goldsmith that's not willing to train somebody, there's obviously something wrong with there. They're obviously not insecure enough in their own skills that they think that you're going to be a competition to them. And I was lucky enough to work with Rudolf Helsel, who sadly passed away two months ago, and also Erwin Springbrum, who again was another master German goldsmith. And those two guys basically just took me on and taught me everything that they could because Rudolf said this himself, that because I feel you're going to pass these techniques on to other people. So I have no problem passing them on to you. And that I love that because it's almost like you're part of something a little bit bigger. You you know, these techniques and these skills are, are dying out through lack of of knowledge mm. where people buy. Mass production is killing out the skills and the core skills are so important to to every craft and every trade that you have to have respect for them and you have to respect the people that are teaching you. So mm. that's how I managed to, there are just two of them. You know, I've spent time in um, Utrecht in Holland with probably one of the best diamond setters in the world. Uh, I've spent time in Stockholm, learned an amazing amount of Stockholm, amazing stuff there. It's, yeah, just keep, and London, try to get to meet as many people as London. You know, it's just, when you have a passion for something, it's, it's, it's not work. It's just, trying to meet as many people as you can and learn as many techniques. And like that, because of the old school training I have and because of my engineering background, my studio is very different now because I um, I try to incorporate the engineering and the old school goldsmithing techniques as well. Mm. So I have a lot of modern technology, but they're all based on the core skills that I learned from my two German masters, you know, and why why Castle Bar? I mean, I take it for you're from that part of the world, but uh, running running a, running a business is gaming gaming gaining global renown from Castle Bar. It's quite an interesting one. Well, if we look at it on a purely on a financial and a business basis, mm. that if I can work in a place where my rent is really low and my overheads are low, I don't have to constantly be trying to churn out work then to keep everything paid. Mm. Do you know? So like I initially, when I moved back from Stockholm, I started this business in my spare room, purely based on that, like I can work here and it will cost me nothing. So I did a lot of trade work to build up my workshop because we had no money. I had 5,000 euros in my bank account when we moved home. And I was just like, okay, how am I going to work this? So I had my equipment. So I set up a small bench in the spare room and went to, took a flight from Knock Airport to London. And within a few weeks, two weeks, I had doing work for six of the biggest names on Bond Street. You know, wow. they didn't care that I was living that I didn't tell them I was doing for my spare room. All they <laughs> cared about was that they showed them my work and that I could do their work perfectly and send it back to them on time. That's all they wanted. They don't mm. care where you are. So that was that got me started. And it's still the same feeling I have uh, on a financial basis to have my business in Mayo because it's just so much easier to run a business here. Granted, you have the downfall, which is people are always saying, why aren't you in Dublin or London? Or mm. And I was like, well, the other side of things is I don't want to be in those places. Do you know? When you're doing something creative and you're trying to push the boundaries of design and try and do different, different techniques, if you're under pressure 
financially and creativity. If you're surrounded by all that pressure, it just kills kills any creativity you have. So when I'm living in the West of Ireland, surrounded by the people that support me and surrounded by the nature that I love, you know, you just go out your door and you're in automatically a park and you can just go for a run down through the bog fields and you're, <laughs> you know, you're recharged as opposed to, I would find that as much as I love cities, that I do love going to cities because I'm kind of in a juxtaposition between the nature and been absolutely fascinated by the likes of fashion and all the trappings that cities have to offer. But mm. I get a good dose of both of them and I can just kind of work the two of them together. So I know mm. what you're saying. People do think I'm crazy to have a, a business in Castlebar that sells high-end jewellery. I, I would actually say au contraire because <laughs> uh, my, my next question would be how do we get more business of your ilk to places in the regions and, and, and build up employment in the regions and encourage more growth in the regions. Because I, I, I think you're right. I mean, you're near you're near Knock Airport or you're at least two hours from Dublin and you can be in Paris or London or Berlin or anywhere you need to be, whenever you need to be, and then you can leave it all behind. But in terms of like, because I, 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 I think I think seeing uh, the variety of businesses that emerge in regions, particularly a jewellery business or a goldsmithery appearing in, in Castlebar, I think I think I was more fascinated with the with the potential of of more of these kind of businesses emerging and you know, whether it's art or it's it's craftsmanship or it, you know it's something else. It could be someone being a musician. We were in a world right now where a lot of these really this this art potential is often, as you point out, in terms of goldsmith work, it's been destroyed by um, mass manufacturing, uh, and at the same time, then you see the biggest companies in the world, like Apple, at the same time, you know, say or claim, say we we care about the craftsmanship and the, the end product and the quality and the integrity of these goods, and you know, every, well, at the same time, everything's gone to Shenzhen. How do we? How do we? How do we really make it possible for somebody, as you say, pursue a passion, build a business, do it where they want to do it? And my my logic also is, you know, the more people you have either working remotely or working in the regions or where they come from, they're going to go to the local shop and buy a loaf of bread, and those those all those transactions lead to more jobs being created in the local area, and you know. So I suppose I'd like to really think, you know, what, what do you think about how do you foster a local industry, these crafts, you know, whether it's whether it's Castlebar or it's Cork or it's Kerry or Limerick. How do you, you know, feel about, you know, generating a kind of an industrial revival of Ireland, but on, on people's terms, on, on, on their own terms? Yeah, well, I think what I wanted to do when I, I set up this studio, especially, and even when I moved back home, I... I was kind of a little bit annoyed with a lot of the craftspeople in Ireland for the way they're approaching things. Mm. Like I, I will always support Irish as much as I can, but I don't think we should put the onus on the customer. I think we should put the onus on ourselves mm. as craftspeople to have the best quality work in the world. Like I didn't just want to be the best jeweler in Ireland or the best jeweler in Mayo. You know, I wanted to be well, probably the only one, but <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, I I wanted to give people an option that when they get a ring in Mayo, and it's going to take time to build up this name, but that it can be guaranteed the best in the world. Mm. You know, and I think we shouldn't automatically put it on to the customer. Oh, you should buy local. It was like, yeah, you should buy local, but you should also have the option of buying the best in the world. And mm. that should be local. 
And conversely, I suppose, I suppose the next one is like, how do you, like, okay, so you, Nigel O'Reilly, do what you do in Castle Bar, but then how do you sell to the world? And this comes in questions like e-commerce or how you promote yourself online and, you know, build your brand globally from, from, from there. Well, again, it's, it goes back to the same, same thing. If you have work that can stand up with anybody's in the world, people will buy it. It doesn't matter where it's made. Mm. Um, the fact that it's made in the West of Ireland is actually even more of a selling point, especially with the US market. Like, but how do I get myself out there? Again, it's just by hard work and putting mm. yourself in front of the right people. Like we had, it seems like I, sounds like I only just signed with an agent, but I did sign in January with Thierry Chanou, who's the head of Bojest, and he's a high-end jewelry and watches agent. So like he's my man on the ground in New York. So like there's people in these situations, as long as you put yourself out there and make work and have the best photography in the world. And, you know, it's all these things all come together. You can't expect people to spend huge money on, on your work if you're, not, if you're not promoting it properly or if you're not letting people know that this mm. is as good as anywhere you're going to get. And this take, it takes time. It's not going to be an overnight thing. And people have to realize that too. If you want to make really, really great work, it takes time to build up a name mm. in that. It's not an overnight success. These, you know, people that are on line and have 20,000 followers after a week you're kind of like they're bits <laughs> yeah. of fa- they're a fad yeah. in many ways the you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the influencers and all that kind of stuff it's a again i'm not going to go down that road i'll get loads of hate mail but <laughs> it's um <laughs> yeah you have to have integrity you have to have belief mm. in what you do and you have to get your you have to work to the highest standards and not be just trying to tick along and Mm. Uh, I got some great advice from one of my good friends in London, uh, Ben Day. He, me and him worked together for years and he was like, you get known for what you do. So some people, a lot of jewelers say, well, I'll start making some silver pieces and I'll start making some cheaper stuff first, you know, to build up money. And I was like, no, I want to go in and make beautiful, expensive pieces and show people that this is the best in the world. Because mm. if I was doing that, I'd spend 20 years still making cheaper work, trying to tell people, well, I can make big stuff. I was like, well, mm. show me some big stuff. You know, you need to have the killer pieces. Like that, with, when I was lucky enough to meet Saoirse Ronan, I needed the big pieces. Like, she's going to be on the red carpet, so you can't go say, well, this is a half-carat sapphire. It's like, no, mm. you need something that's going to... You know, and it's important for her as well and the, the actresses that they have work that's as good as anybody's in the world because that's mm. what they're representing. You know, you yeah. have to be high end. No compromise. No compromise. <laughs> and, and I suppose then, uh, like, I suppose to just ask you, like, what would, what, what would, was probably the most challenging aspect of, of getting your business off the ground? I mean, you mentioned there you started in your, in your, in your bedroom. At the same time, you went over to London and you sold yourself quite well and you got, you, you won the trust of these commissions. You won the commissions, you got the jobs done. But I suppose what was the, it was, was there, I mean, because I, I, I get the feeling from you that self-belief is 90% of your brand or your thing and that you, you really believe in yourself and you, you you have your principles and that's that should be enough to float anyone but uh you know but from 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 getting started in business and and going out in the world what, what was what was was ranting that was daunting or, or a challenge that you had to overcome um well finances are always the thing 
like just create self-belief i think uh, confidence bordering on self-delusion has been my my, my goal <laughs> all my life yeah well, like finances has always been been a major drawback because um, let's be honest i'm competing against people that have huge financial backing mm. and you know huge huge money behind them do you know mm. so i luckily i was able to get the spci uh, loan from mm. bank of ireland actually mm. and that has been a huge weight off my mind in many ways because the plan was always the same and we've always had the same goal but now that you've actually got that bit of um funding behind you you can actually really relax and be a bit more creative it just makes just takes that little pressure off your shoulders it was kind of like if i invest thirty thousand euros into one piece that's my cash flow held up you know so it's um yeah finances is always the the biggest thing but again i don't if i had a huge financial backer would my work still be the same would i have the same hunger to do it i don't think i would so it's a double-edged sword if you're not hungry for something you won't you won't be as eager to get it so like i've had to and again i'm not going down the sob story road or anthem but i have had to fight for everything i i have so i'm not going to stop doing that now you know and every success you get it just spurs you on to the next bit this is like my goal was to get my work onto Sorsha Ronan and as soon as that was over after about five minutes I was like okay I need to get her work while she's at the Oscars I need to get it on somebody you know it's like you you have to create create, keep creating targets for yourself what does the future look like I mean in terms of your own ambition for for your business do you see yourself taking on apprentices do you see the bit, like I mean, like if if you did get you know uh, uh someone to wear your jewelry at the Oscars or you know on 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 Fifth Avenue in New York or wherever you know wherever wherever this needs to be, you know the scale aspect. How how do you see it scaling? How do you how do you tend to keep up? Like if 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 the goals are achieved, obviously the business will expand, and therefore how do you tend to keep up with that expansion? Yeah, expansion is a strange one to think about. Like again, I started on my own, but now there's six of us on the go i just have a young apprentice in now a young guy he's only 15 and he's shown amazing promise you know he's still in school so he's here for his summer summer break no and i do i still remember what rudolph said to me you have to pass these things on Mm. and like i've trained in my older brother who is now my main diamond setter and then my other older brother he's my guy that does all my cads so you know it's it's a kind of almost a family business now at this stage but (laughs) But it's all based on, it sounds again, my training. So I've trained them up to the where I want them to be. Mm. And yeah, I have a huge sense of responsibility that I pass these these skills on. But upscaling, uh, or I do want to keep the workshop. Maybe we're at six now, maybe seven. And I think I'd like to hold on at least for the time being with that mm. that amount of staff. Because again, I do love the bench i love working and it's getting with all the commitments and thankfully with the lockdown i have been able to chill out a bit and not have to be traveling as much to london and new york so that has made things a little bit easier for the time being but i do love the bench i love what i do i love working it's the most time when my head stops thinking and i can just focus on the job no i want to keep the studio to this level so i can keep the the skill levels and keep the quality as high as we can. You know, that's where 
that's that's what I want to do. It has to be has to be high quality, or else else you're just turning into one of those other juniors that I give out about producing mass produced <laughs> low quality work. You know, so I I never want to go down that road. It's just not what I want to do. And and in the part of the junior market you're in, and my final question really is, um, is it competitive? Is there like in a sense among among the kind of peers that you would rate yourself against? In a way, you guys are also trendsetters, or you're setting the the trend for the next evolution of jewellery. I'm I'm sure there's there's an element of that. I mean, classic pieces are classic pieces, but they're over over time. Uh, every and every every time is unique, and every time is 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 classic. Is there is there a kind of a is there a, is there a kind of a competition among your peers and yourselves to kind of you know set the standard or set the look or you know those kind of things uh, apart from just setting stones? Um, of course, look, you can't be in. Um, I think creativity is also driven on by a slight insecurity in many ways that you're always trying to prove that you're as good as the other guy or better than the other guy. Every time we meet meet up or um, with my peers, thank, luckily I've been able to meet many of them. Yeah, we're all super friendly and really nice because we're all in the same boat. But mm. uh, yeah, you always want to be better than them. <laughs> you know, there is always that competitive edge because mm. if you lose that, then, you know, if you're not looking at your work and thinking, how can I make that better? Or mm. like when you finish a piece, you're happy, f- again, there's a five minute window of satisfaction, but then you kind of go, Oh, maybe I should have changed that. Maybe there's something there. So it was like with the next piece, I won't do that. And I'll actually be able to improve that style. And it's, it's all evolution. If you've stopped, if you've stopped beating yourself up over a piece, then you're, you're wasting your time. Is, Is there, is there a sense of destiny about it? Like, I mean, like, you know, you're creating a mo a moment in time, like, you know, you created this, you know whether it's a ring or a brooch or, or or a necklace you've created something that is of the time you're in and maybe some of you will be looking at it 200 years from now and going that's a classic Nigel O'Reilly piece from the you know <laughs> 2020 Ireland uh do do, do 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 you ever feel that when you're making something that you have this kind of it's like a time stamp yeah absolutely every piece that goes out the door is like a representation of you as a person and as a craftsperson and if you let that down, it's that that piece, that one piece that you're not happy with, that's the piece that somebody could look at in 200 years' time and go, oh, he wasn't that good. I've been lucky enough to work with Sotheby's, the auction house, do you know? Mm. And I, I got to meet Frank Everett, the head of um, jewellery there, and talking, and he picks up a piece, and I was looking at that. It was kind of like, if I hadn't... To, spent that extra bit of time finishing that before I came out, this is the piece he would look at and go, oh, well, you know, that's that's not good enough. Because I was really desperate for time and I had to get get on the flight the next day. But I was like, no, you have to finish this. You cannot go to New York with work that's not perfect. You know, and 90% of the people wouldn't have noticed the tiny little scratches that were underneath it, but I had to get them out. And that was the one piece that Frank picked up and was looking at first. You know, wow. so... Again, that's, yeah, that's the one piece that people will pick up. And I learned that from working with Rudolph, actually, because I'd be making, let's say, a group of three or four pieces. And it was always the one that had the mistake on it that he'd pick up first. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> why? Why is it always that one? <laughs> but, um, yeah, so there is a huge sense of responsibility, I suppose, and just to keep that 
you know, keep your keep your name going, you know. As responsible responsibility for you mentioned at the start about industries here in in the west of Ireland and remote mm. working. Like I do have this vision and maybe it's a bit delusional, but I do want to I would love that in twenty years time a young apprentice will leave Mayo and go to Paris and they'd be like, Go into a workshop and like, where did you train? It's like, oh, I trained in Mayo. And they'd be like, Oh, well you must be good. You know, I just love that. And it would be yeah. it mightn't be me. It could be like, you know, if I teach an apprentice, then they open up their own place and then they train somebody, you know, it's... Yeah, you want to create a standard. Uh, yeah, and I would just love, um, I'd love Mayo to have that or the West of Ireland to have something like that, you know. And again, it's, again, it's the goal. It's a long-term goal, but maybe I'm a bit delusional as well, but it would be nice to have the West of Ireland because we've been hit by so many things over the years and... Mm. Oh, it would be nice to have something you know nice to change the narrative and you know have something born there yeah born there that isn't you know to do with the famine or football you know so <laughs> you know it'd be nice <laughs> well Nigel thank you so much that was a really great interview I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, really really impressed and I really wish you the best of luck with it so thanks again okay thank you <laughs>